Well, I'd like to know why this policewoman would suddenly drive her car into a field the size of Rhode Island and for no rhyme or reason dig up the bones of a man who's been missing for 50 years. I mean, unless there was a neon sign saying, dig here. I guess that's why we're going to Aubrey. Yes, and also I've always been intrigued by women named BJ. Discovering the X-Files, the podcast in which a newbie takes a deep dive into the entirety of Chris Carter's universe, while longtime fans escort me on the journey, a perilous journey filled with government conspiracies or weird monsters every other week. I'm Eric's Antoine, and today Daniel and I will be discussing Aubrey, which originally aired on January 6th, 1995. It was written by Sarah B. Charno and directed by Rob Bowman. In this episode, a detective from Aubrey, Missouri, named B.J. Morrow, discovers the remains of an FBI agent who disappeared almost 50 years earlier while investigating a murder case. And Mulder and Scully ultimately discover that Detective Morrow is somehow carrying on her grandfather's murderous traits in her genetic makeup. It's a very loopy serial killer thriller featuring genre legend Terry O'Quinn, And even if we don't quite grasp all the details, Daniel and I will still try to break it down in a moment. Stick around. Mr. Coakley, our records show that in 1942 you lived in Terrence, Nebraska, an hour's drive away from Aubrey, Missouri. During that time, three women were murdered in Aubrey. Their assailant had mutilated their bodies with a razor in the same manner that you slashed Mrs. Linda Thibodeau's body in 1945. I don't remember much about that. Well, I'm sure Mrs. Thibodeau will never forget it. Doctors said I was sick back then. They gave me some pills. I served my time, and now I'm better. Can you tell me where you were about 8.35 p.m. two nights ago, Mr. Coakley? Sitting right where I am now. Do you have a witness to testify to that? Are you blind? I can't leave the house without this damn thing. I sit right here in front of that TV 24 hours a day. And on the night you're talking about, I was sitting here watching a show about a lost dog. And then after that, it was a show about... That won't be necessary. Good. Now, are you that finished with me, little sister? So, you know, I, I just have two words to say to you. Um, Terry O'Quinn. <laughs> uh, and I know and I know he's not like the showcase thing in this episode. Clearly mm-hmm. he isn't. Uh, he, you know, it's, it's a relatively minor role in the grand scheme of things. But, you know, I, he's one of my favorite character actors. And I imagine you as a genre fan, as a horror oh, fan. Yeah. Yeah, he's probably high on your list as well, uh, I would imagine. Yeah, he is. And um, clearly he was for Chris Carter and everyone else as well, because it's not spoiling anything to tell you that you're going to see Terry O'Quinn at least two more times in the X-Files. 
as two more different characters. And then he was also on Millennium. I think he was on Carter's short-lived series, um, Harsh Realms, and a couple of other things. Uh, I think, now I can't remember the name of the production company, but I think they, they ended up nicknaming him Mr. 1011 Productions because he had been in so much of their stuff throughout the years. <laughs> Yeah, uh, 1013. So 1013, that's what it was. Yes, yeah, Mr. 1013. Uh, that would make sense. He seems to be a favorite of a certain generation mm -hmm. because if you have, like, you've got Chris Carter on the one hand, and he's not exactly a contemporary, though he almost is, of like J.J. Abrams. Yeah. And J.J. Abrams also is a huge fan of his because, you know, he used him on Alias in a great role, he used him on, used him on Lost, obviously, he was a the big, uh, big actor there. Uh, he's one of those guys who just, I guess, us genre fans really like him because he's awesome. He's a great actor. And he's one of the, I mean, he has a very interesting presence and a very unique yep. presence. And he has given several memorable performances, but of course his most memorable performance is The Stepfather, <laughs> which, which for my money is, you know, award caliber material. That is one of the great, like, film performances of all time. And although he was noticed, although he got good notices for his work in that film, and the, you know, the first Stepfather is considered a, a you know, thriller classic. People, it's looked upon fondly. Maybe people don't feel the same way about the sequels as I do. I enjoy the sequels, but in any case, The Stepfather, the original, is considered a classic film, and he was rightfully praised for that, but he didn't get any awards attention, you know? And I guess because it's a small... It was a small-budget kind of thriller, and they just didn't... Uh, you know, it just didn't, didn't happen. But it was the sort of thing where... I get the sense that if The Stepfather had come out in later times, he might have gotten awards attention because you do occasionally see that, you know, with, with certain actors yeah. where it's, it's a little, it's like an indie thriller or whatever, but because there's a very, you know, there's something memorable there. Uh, you know, I mean, Daniel Kaluuya uh, got a Best Actor nomination for Get Out. So had The Stepfather come out in the climate where th this was more acceptable, I think Terry O'Quinn easily would have gotten an Academy Award nomination for The Stepfather. But interesting that you brought up Millennium, because I am a little familiar with Millennium, having watched some episodes. And I, and I do like, in that show, which, you know, we'll eventually get to Millennium, but yeah. in that show, he, he plays Peter Watts. It's a recurring character, but a, an important recurring character, like, throughout the series. <laughs> and this character here is essentially a prototype Peter Watts. Kind I mean, he, he's essentially a police detective... Almost to the point, I mean, Millennium is kind of a spin-off of the X-Files, or in any case, it is. it takes place in the same universe, I guess. Mm -hmm. is that the, yeah, that that's does. essentially it, right? So it just seems weird that you cast Terry O'Quinn <laughs> in, in as a detective. And, you know, I mean, you, they had done this. I, I don't know if Millennium was being developed at this time or what. I don't know at what stage things were at this point. Maybe not. But it just seems weird to me that they didn't take advantage and just say, well, you know, we might as well pick it up from there. Because it is about, Millennium is about, you know, investigating yeah. serial killers. Yeah. And so, you know, it would have made sense, well, you know, let's just bring back the character. 
I think what I'm saying is that now, now that I've you know gone through this, and now when I watch Millennium, in my head it's going to be the same dude. I like uh, like he, here he plays Detective Tillman, and I'm just going to say, nah, it's Peter Watts. You know, like because as I was watching it, I was like, oh, it's Peter Watts. You know, and so when I do get to Millennium, I'll be like, right, it's the uh, you know it's the same guy from uh, from Aubrey. You know, this this is continuing his story, continuing his legacy. But yeah, but the big showcase, of course, in this episode is not Terry O'Quinn. I mean, of course, it's nice to see him. Uh, but the the big one, of course, is I don't know the actress's name. So uh, we'll Deborah Strang, I think. Yeah, Deborah Strang. Thank you. So the big thing here is Deborah Strang as BJ, and I am, I, I, you know, I, I guess, you know, you you can go ahead and uh, cop to it. It was it was distracting the fact that the character's name was BJ. And they keep referring to her because her full name's BJ Morrow. And they don't mm-hmm. they don't refer to her as Detective Morrow or whatever. They just keep on calling her BJ. And obviously the 13-year-old inside me just and couldn't inside help Mulder. It. Yeah, and inside Mulder. He, and inside he cracks Mulder. the joke right at the beginning. Well, I, it's got it has to have been deliberate, I suppose. Yeah. And then they there are very few opportunities for humor in the X-Files. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I kind of wanted to, to go there for a second. It is a pretty dark series, mm-hmm. and it has a pretty serious tone. So there are moments, you know, like Mulder will crack a joke, there'll be this and that. It, But I don't know, maybe it's not the same for you, but for me, like it reminds me of a Christopher Nolan movie. You know, yeah. Christopher Nolan is often accused of being a humorless filmmaker humorless joyless all these like adjectives get thrown but essentially that the guy is not you know he has no sense of humor etc and the tones of his films it kind of don't allow for humor so in some cases it can be very shallow like you can definitely tell like in one of the places where it's most noticeable is in batman begins where there are a couple of little like throwaway gag lines that you can tell were just thrown in there. They weren't in the script. Uh-huh. And someone was saying it was either a studio note or something. It's like, we don't have enough jokes here. You know, and so that's why you have like nice coats and all these like weird little things just thrown I in. I gotta get just... me one of those. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And just like it just seems like, yeah, this is stuff that was either these were reshoots or somebody on the set was saying, you know maybe he should just crack a joke or something. And that stuff feels a little bit forced. And I, it's similar in The X-Files. And I can't really put my finger on it, but something about how the tone of it is so, like, serious, that humor doesn't really break through uh, the way it would on other shows. And it's not, I'm not saying that it's distracting or that it's, like, a bad thing necessarily, but there are, there are times when it just feels weird. Because Mulder, the character, you believe him cracking jokes. You believe him being, like, yeah. sarcastic. And so when it's an organic thing and it's an organic part of the dialogue, it's fine. It's part of his. It's part of the character. And it's fine and it works, but there are other times when it just feels out of place. And so in this particular episode, which is actually a really, really twisted and fucked up story, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, in just many ways, and there's just no room for humor in this particular episode. And so little things like that, the fact that the character's name is BJ and the fact that Mulder cracks a joke. And 
it almost seems like these things were stuck in there to lighten up the mood a little bit because they knew that things were heavy, but they don't fit. And so it, it sort of feels it's a little bit jarring. So for me, yes, the 13-year-old in me was entertaining itself by giggling every time. It was like, BJ, 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 you know, and that's fine, but it, it doesn't fit such a dark story. And the story is really dark, and I think uh, a very good story that by itself could have made for the plot of a really cool film, like a really good serial killer thriller with this same yeah. plot. Like, it would be really good, like really interesting. The The idea of genetic memory of in these, again, it's exploring things that have been talked about in science and in, you know, urban legend and this kind of thing. But, mm-hmm. but it's a very compelling, uh, believable idea to some degree. You know, it's a little far-fetched. And again, it lacks the pregnant moment, although maybe literally in this case it is. I mean, <laughs> you know, is it the pregnancy that activates that thing in her? Is it, I mean, what, I think we're led to believe that that's the case. Yeah, it's, it's implied that the stress of the pregnancy revelation is what caused her to snap. Right, and so she's experiencing typical symptoms of a of a pregnancy, right? And and it, it would make sense that that would activate in her something because she has some genetics. There's something in her that is so it gets activated, and of course, what she interprets as nightmares, it's actually her doing these things. Yes. And Right, that part is good. Like, see, here we have a story where that's it. You know, yep. like I, it was. I was so happy when, <laughs> like, when we, when we get to like the big revelation, the big third act twist, and it turns out that it's you know okay, so she's the granddaughter of the serial killer, and she's been doing this. It wasn't like she's the grandmother of the serial killer, and she has his memory, and she's remembering his killings, but. The actual killer is a copycat killer who studied the case. <laughs> I'm just glad that it wasn't that because it seems like that very easily could have been the way they would have gone with this. Oh, yeah. Based on how other episodes have gone. And I was just like, thank God. Like, thank God they just somebody. Like, I'm almost certain that in story conferences, conversations <laughs> were had because. Oh, probably. This was pitched by a freelance writer. This was her first, like. A script for the show, and then uh, Glenn Morgan and uh, and James Wong, they basically finessed the screenplay a bit. You know, they they finessed the teleplay a bit and made it sort of fit in with X Files. And sure enough, yes, it was the it was two concepts that they ended up mashing together because I, I was reading about that. She pitched a story of a fifty year serial killer and the whole genetic memory thing. Mm-hmm. And they said, and they had an idea for a story of a serial, of a, of a female serial killer, right? And so they said, well, you know, why don't we just mix these two ideas and make, make the detective, who's a woman, into the new serial killer because she has genetic memory. And whereas it seems to me like in the past it would have been like, well, you have the genetic memory, blah, blah. But you also have this female serial killer who's doing the killings. It, I'm just so glad that this time they found a way to consolidate the two ideas. They did exactly what we've always, what we've been talking about yeah. 
the better way to do it, this time they did it. So this is a very tight, very well-written episode. Yeah, I, I hate to bag on any of them, but <laughs> part, of, part of me pictures um, Chris Carter or Alex Gansa or Howard Gordon sitting in the uh, writer's room going, but, but what if it turned out that Mrs. Thibodeau was the actual serial killer? <laughs> Just that one step too far that they, yeah. that they often get themselves in trouble with. Yeah, exactly. That's that was, and I was, you know, as I was sitting there, I was on the edge of my seat, and in part because the story is suspenseful, but also because I was like, <laughs> please, please don't fuck this up, please, like you've got this is really good, this is really compelling, and I get it, and I'm and I'm there with you, I can follow this. You throw me one more thing, you throw me one more <laughs> curveball, and you are going to lose me, as you sometimes do, with these like far out stories. But yeah, dark, dark, uh, a dark story, and that explores some interesting concepts about genetics and that sort of thing. Yeah. And not, you know, again, one of those stories where they don't go to a paranormal place, they don't go to a supernatural place, they go to a relatively grounded place. And I get the, I get the impression that it was episodes like this that led to the creation of Millennium. Yeah. Uh, it, it would seem like they they kept coming up with these ideas that were a little bit more grounded, a little bit more about, you know, just a regular serial killer kind of thing. And they started to feel that, well, number one, I, I can only imagine that as, as the series progresses into season three and four and so on, they start to pay more attention to the mythology, yeah. right? And so since they do that, they probably say, okay, we, we need to start focusing more on this stuff. And these stories, they're not really fitting into the, the tone of the series, what we've achieved. This is much more paranormal. It's, it's in a much weirder place. So they think to themselves, yeah, let's just, you know, what can we do? And so they come up with the, the idea for, for a whole other show that, you know, that, that explores that aspect. And I imagine that as soon as Millennium hits, we start to see less and less serial killers on the X-Files. If memory serves, that's that's exactly what happens. And the funny thing about Millennium here is I was reminded of it in this episode way more than I ever had been before. Terry O'Quinn is obvious, this is the obvious touchstone, and we're dealing with serial killers again with a weird twist, which is also you know, a typical Millennium thing. And then I realized that this time that the motel is named the Motel Black. So it made me, I mean, it was yep. immediately thinking of Frank Black. Yeah. So so I'm sitting here watching it and enjoying it, but also thinking, were you guys already workshopping the ideas either intentionally or subconsciously here? Because there's way too many elements at play for it to be entirely a coincidence. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, here's the thing. As I've said in the past, it's not that I'm a complete newbie to the X-Files. I have watched a handful of episodes throughout the years. And I'm pretty sure that I did see this one. You know, obviously, eons ago, of course. Um, but as I was watching it, certain things about it began to... I was like, I think I saw this before. But I've also seen episodes of Millennium. So it seems to me like... I almost would have even confused this. Like if, if I were, because whenever I think back on Millennium, on episodes that I've seen of Millennium, I think of stuff like this. Yeah. 
And so when this episode, and you see Terry O'Quinn there, and so that's why I was immediately, wait a minute, what? And at first I even thought before they named the Terry O'Quinn character, before he's named on screen, for a second I was like, oh, okay, so I guess this is where they introduced the concept of Millennium then. You know, it, just in my head it was my natural, like that's what I was thinking. I, I guess, so they actually started with the with Peter Watts and built it out from there. Oh, that's very interesting, it's unusual. But no, of course, no, that's not what happened. But at the same time, maybe in a spiritual sense, as you're saying, it might have been. You know, it's it might not be so much that they were already workshopping the idea, but it could be that, like I'm saying, like they have this story, and this is a this is a really good one, and they put it in there. But in the back of their heads, they're like, yeah, but these stories, as good as they are, it doesn't quite fit X-Files. You know, like we, we need to sort of twist ourselves into pretzels to justify this as an X-File. And ultimately, yeah, it, it's, it, I mean, again, I want to, I want to stress this. It's a good episode, good story, but it doesn't quite fit. And I could see them saying, yeah, I think we're going to have to do something else. I mean, we love telling these stories, but they don't fit. We're going to have to maybe create a new show. Now that we have the clout, we have a successful series. And they say, you know, all that, all these serial killer ideas, all these like weird kind of more grounded stories, let's put them into Millennium. And then somebody thinks of this as a kind of prototype Millennium episode. Because I can almost imagine that this must be one of the acclaimed episodes, one of the celebrated episodes. I know. I, I don't recall anything to that degree off the top of my head, but I know the producers put um, Deborah Strang forward for a potential Emmy nomination. She didn't end up getting nominated, but... Like, even they had singled this episode out of the season as one that was one of the standouts. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. And you know, so obviously it does, I guess it doesn't show up on any top ten lists or anything by made by fans. Uh, but as I was watching it, like, if I were going to make a top ten list, uh, I'd put this there. Like, when, when we get to the end of the season and I'm... And I, and I go over my favorite, my top episodes of the season, mm-hmm. I think this is easily going to show up on that list. Yeah, I, I, I think I, it'll I, be on mine too. Yeah, I, I mean, I, maybe it's too early to say. We're only about halfway through it. But uh, right now, if I had to narrow it down, let's say, as we did in the first season to about five, I think that this will be there. Unless we have some really outstanding episodes coming along that would knock it off, any kind of top five kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not. I, I don't see. I, this is a really good one. And as you're saying, clearly they saw the quality, and they mm-hmm. they saw that yep. you know the the actress did a great job, and they said, okay, we're going to nominate for an Emmy. So, in for them, it's an important episode. Yeah. And I, that's my theory. This is Millennium exists because of this episode, and Millennium exists in the way that it does because of this episode. Almost like they use this as a proof of concept for how they wanted Millennium to be. Yeah. What sort of tone they wanted to have, what sort of stories they wanted it to tell. They said, look at Aubrey. That's the episode that that's what we want Millennium to be like week after week. Yeah, I agree. And we'll get a couple of more of those before Millennium itself rears its head. But I, I think the reason why this probably doesn't end up on a lot of top lists for the series i mean it's not because it's not great because it is a great episode i think it's got two strikes against it number mm-hmm. one is that 
you know, anytime you get a fan compressing that down to their absolute favorites, odds are high that the list is going to be entirely either the best mythology episodes or the best monster of the week episodes that are more paranormal or creature oriented, which automatically kicks this off to the side. Mm -hmm. And I think the other big thing, and it's the only problem I have with this episode, the title. The title is so nondescript. But on the flip side, I've, I had a hard time thinking of what else to call it without it also being confusing. Because immediately you think, Aubrey, it's going to be about some character named Aubrey. When when we were talking about it previously, yeah. even I, just from the title, didn't remember what the episode was. Yeah. But, of course, what else are you going to call it? Are you going to call it Sister? If you do that, everyone's going to think it's an episode about Mulder's sister. Same if you call it so. Little Sister. So that's not sure. going to work. So I don't even know what sure. you would have called it other than Aubrey. Yeah, I mean, well, here's the thing. I mean, okay, so a couple of things about that. Because we, we've talked about this in the past. How, like, uh, the the series doesn't actually have on-screen titles. Right? And given some of the titles they come up with, they tend to be very kind of interesting and poetic and whatever and pretentious um you, you would think that they would make a point of letting you see the episode title and it seems interesting to me that they don't and and i think that having episode titles is, is sort of a lost art like I, I don't see it really happening i don't are there any current shows that still do that well i mean the orville does okay the orville does that's a recent show but the orville is very much a star trek pastiche yeah and the they're, mandalorian they're definitely... does but yeah a lot mandalorian of them does, you're right a lot of them either don't bother at all or they'll flash it on for a couple of seconds and then it's gone so unless yeah. you're literally if i mean if you're eating and you look down or if your cat runs across the room or dog or whatever you're going to miss the title on most yeah. shows because it's just usually overlaid over the opening scene, you know, panning across a city skyline or down a street or whatever. Yeah. And it's there for two or three seconds and then it's gone. Yeah. I mean, right. Weirdly enough, like the, the new Star Trek series, uh, the new Trek shows like Discovery and Picard, they don't have on-screen episode titles, you know, uh, which is weird because that's a Star Trek tradition. So they should, but they don't. Um, the Crown does. A couple of Netflix shows do, um, what I've noticed. Like they, they do play the episode title during the opening credits, much much like you said. Though it's kind of a throwaway thing that they just put there, right? They put the episode title and then who's like. Uh, so there are a few shows that are doing it, but it it has not been a very common thing. I think since the '90s even, and so my why am I saying this? Because again, this episode is called Aubrey. But you would only know that if you looked up, if you looked at an episode guide, or if you, you know, you look at it on the DVDs, the DVD collection, and, you know, it's got the list of episodes there, and the DVD menu is probably labeled. But apart from that, or on Hulu, you know, as I'm watching it, there it is, it's labeled. But apart from that, I wouldn't know. And so, on the one hand, yes, it's, a, it's kind of a silly, unmemorable title that even if it did have on-screen titles, maybe you wouldn't remember this title. And it it doesn't even have something in the title where you go, right, this is the one about that. And as far as what they could have called it, 
the truth is they could have called in anything they wanted to. True. You know, I mean, it's uh, like they, I don't know why, to be honest, I don't even know why it's called Aubrey because I, it takes place in Aubrey, Missouri. Right, but, it, but it's not but about it, the town. <laughs> yeah, not at all. No, like if it were something about some, something about the town, I guess you could say, yeah, it's about killings. It's about historical killings in the town, but, or not even, right? Because I think the, the, the victim, the, the survivor, uh, Mrs. Mm-hmm. What was her name? Thibodeau. Thibodeau, Thibodeau right? Uh, Mrs. Thibodeau. I believe that is she in Aubrey? Isn't she outside of Aubrey? Yeah, it it feels like she's one town over, maybe. Okay, and I mean, she was attacked in that same house because she talks about the landing and like where it all happened. So she wasn't attacked in Aubrey. The uh, the killer, the you know. Uh, now that he's in his 70s uh, on assisted respiration <laughs> with his oxygen tank and whatnot, uh, that's pretty cool too. Like that that scene, his interrogation, <laughs> you know, like Terry O'Quinn is just like, like, just like laying into him and he's just sitting there going, you know, where were you? In Honolulu. Whatever. <laughs> and then just uh, look at me, you damn fool. You know, <laughs> but he's not in Aubrey either. He's not like he he's is. Of town he lives somewhere. He lives somewhere, like on you know, on his own. So yeah, there's really no reason for the episode to be called Aubrey. I I, I agree with you. I think it's got a terrible title. I think it's got a really, uh, it's not a good title for this episode. I couldn't tell you what. You're right. They couldn't call it Sister, although that would be a good title for it. Is that they they come up with with all these you know titles like Born Again and you know Lazarus and the, the, these kinds of things. This title. This episode could have had a title like that as well. Yeah. Something about, you know, we could have called it the uh, the persistence of memory. You know, like <laughs> make, it, <laughs> make an allusion to the uh, to the Dali painting. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I you're right. Titles can be important. Maybe not so much in a in a series that doesn't have on screen titles though, because people tend to, unless you're like a really hardcore fan that investigates this and looks at episode guides and and you learn the names of episodes. If you're just a regular viewer of the show, you just remember it as the one with so and so, or the one about so and so. That that's the one really helpful. Genetic serial killer memory. Right, exactly. Yeah, the one about you know the the granddaughter of the serial killer that she's a detective and she turns out to be a serial killer too. That one. That's Aubrey. Uh, yeah, a lot of interesting things. The little details. I, I love that thing about the, how they use the rib cage to, yeah. you know, to sort of figure out what's written on it. Like that was, that was interesting. So he would write sister on women and brother on men. Yeah. And most of his victims were women. All his victims were yeah. women. All of them, but the two, the two detectives. Right, who he just killed because they were on his tail, so he had to, you know, he had to get rid of them. And it seems a little bit, I mean, this happened in the 40s, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, th- these initial killings uh, and attacks happened in the 40s, and he was caught and sent to prison. And considering that he is responsible for several deaths, including the deaths of law enforcement officers it just seems strange that they wouldn't have given him life in prison they make it a point to 
Um, well, Mulder kind of uh, chidingly points out that he was a what he was arrested and imprisoned for was attacking Mrs. Thibodeau and getting caught before he finished the job. And even though the M.O. was exactly the same as the serial murders that had happened over in Aubrey, for whatever reason, there was no interjurisdictional um, information sharing. So he was only ever charged for the one assault and rape, I guess, and mm-hmm. not the actual murders a few towns over, which I guess were still sitting as unsolved cases. Because it was old enough to where... The FBI was not yet tracking serial killers. It sounded like these two dudes were doing it on their own time. And um, I guess extradition and all of that from state to state wasn't yet a thing. So, you know, you could get away with gunning someone down in Montana and then just getting arrested for armed robbery down in Louisiana. And, you know, never the twain shall meet. No one's going to know. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, I guess it also means that he probably had a really good lawyer. Yeah, probably. Who, because it's possible that they wanted to pin some of these things on him, but there was enough. Uh, it, it was it was shaky enough that the lawyer could be like, "Yeah, you know, you have no evidence that he actually committed these other murders. The only evidence you have is that he attacked this woman." So. I'm sorry, you're going to have to, that, that's, that's it. You know, that's, that's the only thing you can charge him with. And, you know, fair enough. So send them to prison for 50 years. But, <laughs> like, he will eventually see the light of day again. Yeah, it's, it's true. And also the 40s were a very different time in terms of forensics and all of that stuff. So yeah. they might have just been dum-dums. And maybe they didn't even make the connection. And I guess legally, since he was already sent to prison... They can't now say, "Oh yeah, we have enough. We have evidence now." I mean, I, I guess, I guess you could, but uh, you know, we have evidence now that you killed these police detectives as well, and so we can we can actually try you now for these murders as well, even though you're in your seventies. But just to <laughs> lock you up, and you're in your seventies, and you're no longer a threat to anyone. But you need to go to jail for what you've done. <laughs> I think throwing him in, had that gone down that way, throwing him in jail would have been an upgrade from his living conditions that he had at the moment. Yeah, no, no doubt. I mean, uh, you know, he, he would be getting, he'd be getting three square meals a day. He would be getting constant care, you know, on the taxpayer's dime. He, you know, I'm sure that he wouldn't have to worry. Like, he, his oxygen tank would be plentiful. Uh, because he's an old dude, he'd kind of have some respect from the old, from, because he's, you know, He'd just be like the old dude who just sits there and watches TV all day in the break room and then goes to his cell and that's it. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. I mean, he would probably have a much better life. He would have company. He wouldn't just be like uh, just this this old miserable bastard stuck in a in a house. So ultimately, his life, uh, his current life is, I guess, punishment enough for the for the crimes he committed. The miserable existence and a pretty miserable end when... When yeah. BJ, when BJ finally exacts her, her vengeance, and I, I get the sense, I, I'm, we're to understand that once he dies, the the thing because it's like it's like he's psychically connected to her. Yeah, it's it's weird that way. It's it's really vague, and they're they're doing their thing again, but they keep it at the back. They keep it grounded in the background enough that it doesn't overwhelm the episode like it does 
in other situations where their vague supernatural hoo-ha is going on and just overpowers everything because they never bother to explain it. Yeah, it kind of plays, in addition to reminding me of Millennium, it reminded me a lot of uh, Italian Jolly films where you've got a pseudo-psychological explanation for the murders and someone going crazy in the background, but it's grounded more in their performance and not so much in the explanation of why they went batshit and started cutting someone up with a straight razor, which is another giallo staple. Yeah, well, and another giallo staple, at least of the early um, Argento giallos, mm-hmm. uh, is the killer turns out to be a woman. Yeah. Which is something that, you know, repeatedly happened. And uh, that's, you're right. I hadn't thought of that, but you're right. This is basically a giallo. There, there, you know, there is a very elemental giallo uh, aspect to it, which I had not thought about until you just brought it up, and you're absolutely right. And there you go. That's the plot hole, isn't it? Because yeah. the, the suggestion is, okay, genetic memory is passed down, etc. And But there's one point in which Mulder very clearly says she's not herself. She's, and I forget the killer's name, you know, she's Coakley, that guy. I think. Yeah. Coakley, right. She's Coakley. She's not herself. And so that would mean, okay, so that means that Coakley is now working through her. Like almost, almost like possession, except it's been genetically passed down, and she's behaving like Coakley. She she is Coakley in those moments, right? Yep. But Coakley's still alive, and he has nothing to do with any of it. <laughs> right. Exactly. He and he's not projecting. You know, he's not. You know, in the in the previous episode of the, about the old the old folks' home, where you had like people psychically projecting, and then you also had ghosts, and it was all this confusing nonsense. Well, that very easily also could have happened here where they said, well, it's not genetic memory. No, well, actually, he's actually projecting. He wants to finish what he started. And he and because of their genetic connection, he can project only to her. And again, this is a more interesting idea, but it creates a plot hole in the sense that, well, okay, but Coakley is still alive. And so when she goes into that house and attacks him, is she attacking him like Coakley? And why would Coakley be attacking himself? You know, and the, and yeah. that's the part that's a little bit, it's a little bit of a plot hole. And they don't quite resolve it. And at the end of the episode, she's obviously in a mental institution, which suggests that a part of her has, has not lost that completely. Yeah. Or at least they just figure, I mean, because it's such a far-fetched notion, they can't quite explain it. So they just explain it away as insanity. Yeah, you know, and, and just lock her away, even if the Coakley spirit, if you will, has been expunged because he's now dead. Uh, she's still going to spend the rest of her life in a mental institution, probably. Probably, yep. So yeah, it's a, it's a very sad uh, ending, um, and yeah, very dark story. But overall, yeah, this is a, a very good episode with yeah. a lot of interesting ideas. I liked it a lot. So did I. I know this goes back a long way, Mrs. Thibodeau, but could you tell us what happened the night Harry Coakley attacked you? It happened up there on the landing. I remember how the light from the window bounced off the razor. It it had an ivory handle. He, He kept saying, someone's gotta take the blame, little sister, and it isn't gonna be me. 
Mrs. Thibodeau, our records show that you recuperated from your injuries within two months. But nine months later, you checked back into the hospital. Well, I had complications. What happened to the child? Coakley's child. Martin used to say not to blame the child. It was just a little thing, an innocent. But it was the spawn of evil. And that is that. I hope you enjoyed our discussion, and if you did enjoy it, there are many ways you can support the podcast, which is available on Anchor FM, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. You can subscribe. You can rate and or review it, depending on what platform you're enjoying it on, and of course, you can share and spread the word on social media. Please do any or all of these things. Every little bit helps. Look for the Eric Antoine Network on Facebook or on YouTube. You can also follow me on Twitter at ericsantoine.net and check out my film reviews on Letterboxd. You should also check out Daniel Baldwin's website, theschlocketeer.com, and follow him on Twitter at Daniel W. Baldwin. I'm Eric's Antoine, and I'll be back in a couple of days when Daniel and I will be discussing yet another Atypical X-Files episode, this one called Irresistible. I hope you'll join us. And until then, please remember that the truth is out there. See you next time.